Welcome to the Teaching with Madly Learning podcast replay, fitting it all together to make teaching and learning in the junior grades more accessible, practical, and fun for both teachers and their students. Here's your host, teacher by day, mom of three, and curriculum creator of all the things from madlylearning.com, Patty Firth. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Teaching with Madly Learning. Today, I want to talk about classroom management, specifically how to manage those classes that perhaps the entire rest of your school says is one of the most difficult classes in the building. If that happens to you, if you have a class that eats supply teachers alive, spits them up, chews them out, and leaves them so that they never want to come back, then this episode is for you. So my name is Patty, and I am a teacher here in Ontario, Canada. I've had my share of difficult classes in the last 14 years of my career, and I want to share with you some of the things that I've learned that has helped to manage these classrooms effectively so that you can go home every night and not stress out or want to cry at the end of every day over how your kids are behaving. So I have been teaching for 14 years here in Ontario, Canada, And I am also the teacher author behind madlylearning.com. And every single week, we have a new episode of this show that is all about teaching in the junior grades. So let's dig in exactly on what are the tips and strategies that is going to help you manage your classroom. Now, these are rules that govern how I'm going to manage the classroom because the very first step in how to manage the classroom is looking at the motivation and the the philosophy and the theory on how we approach classroom management. And it's less to do sometimes about the day-to-day things that happen. If we set up a structure and a community and kind of we establish the norms of how students are going to behave and interact with one another, that helps to set the tone in our classroom, which means that we are going to have a much easier time to manage them. So I want to share with you my few rules, my modus operandi of how I manage even what others consider the most difficult class in the school. So my very first rule is praise in public, but criticize privately. This is one of the reasons why I am very much as a teacher against things like the behavior clip charts, class dojo even classroom economies, or any type of rating scale that allows students that they can compare themselves with another student in the class. My very first year of teaching, I used a clip chart or one of those behavior charts where you've got three colors and you have red, yellow, and green, and you swap through the colors to get kids to recognize that if they've had a really good day, they stay on green. If not, they go to a warning or a red. What I did not realize about that first year of teaching was I was unconsciously rewarding negative behavior. What I gave attention to is what was getting repeated in my class. So if I was giving attention to negative behavior, kids fed off of that attention and then that was more likely to happen and other students also followed suit. That it no longer became motivating to stay on green or to earn higher because you didn't get any attention if you earned higher levels. You only simply got attention or you got the most attention when you lowered levels. It also really brought down the community and culture and trust within the classroom because we were focusing on publicly displaying the negative 
consequences for other students. So you knew in the class who the bad kids were and who the good kids were. That is not a narrative that I want in my classroom. So it failed. It failed miserably. I was guided through an amazing mentor to choose another path. And I have not looked back and I will never use those types of programs again. Now, Class Dojo can be used differently, but in its essence, it is often the same way. It is a public display of students' behavior where they get points and they can compare publicly the points that they get compared to the points others get. What we need to do is those students that are struggling, the students that are working really hard, they don't often get recognized. So their points are going to be lower. Well, that is demoralizing to realize that you are so much further behind somebody, yet you may have barriers that are going to prevent you from having the same success as somebody who may be gifted or they may have a lovely home life and everything's sunshine and rainbows in their world so they can come to school ready to perform, ready to do things. They just get what school is like. And when we start ranking students or we start giving points to some students and others and we publicly display them, we set a tone of what it is that we are looking for. And it's based on a very narrow, stereotypical assumption of what a good student looks like, which is often based on neurotypical standards. And we all know that we don't have those students in our classroom. We have lots of neurodiversity in our rooms. So we need to have a way that allows students to meet their full potential and not necessarily demoralize them by comparing them to other people by using point systems. So for that reason, if there, I have standards of what behavior I would like to see, and I do have extrinsic rewards, but they're group points, not individual points, and it is not necessarily going to be dependent. There's not created a social hierarchy in the class with the people who have lots of points and the people who don't, or the people that are on green versus the people that are on red. So individually, if I have students that require individual behavior programs or point systems, that is completely done individually and privately with that student. In fact, I will often put myself on a point system for say things like doing my attendance. So if I do my attendance, my students can give me points. And I'm very public about that, but that's because I want to normalize that type of behavior for some of the students that I may have that may be on individual behavior programs. But I never discuss that publicly in front of my whole class. And it's very much a conversation that is held privately between myself and that student. It means I will use private spaces in my classroom whenever possible. I will have private conversations in a hallway if necessary with students who I need to have those conversations with. But I try not to have those difficult behavior type conversations in front of my entire class because I only want to give attention to the behavior I want to see repeated. My second rule of classroom management is understanding social hierarchy. In every single classroom, there is a social hierarchy in place. There are students that have power and there are students that do not have social power in your classroom. It is very important to understand which students in your room have social power and which students do not. Which students perform for those that have social power, which students give attention to other behaviors, who is controlling what, who has the social power, who is creating the dynamics that you want. Also understanding which students are outside of that realm, which students are not influenced by the social hierarchy in the classroom, 
and which students are on the bottom rungs of those social hierarchy. Students will establish this. You will have some students who are more popular or more liked than others. You will have some students that have deemed themselves the class clown that will perform for other students because they want their reaction. They like getting the attention, not just from the teacher, but they actually enjoy getting the attention from their peers. So they will perform for said peers. You also have students that have decided the narrative around them is they are the good child and they, or they are a bad kid or they are the kid who does nothing or like there's lots of stories and archetypes that you will have in your class that they themselves will create. So understanding how that plays together and looking for ways to disrupt some of those patterns and challenge some of those narratives will also help you to really firmly establish a culture and some social norms within the group. For me, getting to know the social hierarchy, sometimes taking them out for DPA, figuring out who's taking the lead, who's doing what, what other students are giving power to certain students. Understanding that allows me in the classroom to play within that social hierarchy. If I know that there's a student with a lot of social power in your classroom, it's imperative to get that student on your side. You want them to play for your team. You don't want them coaching another team. So you want them to start playing and following your classroom rules and following your routines. You want them to participate. You want them to make the right choices for you. You want them to be a part of your team instead of working against you. That means, generally speaking, if you have students with social power, if they are on your side, if they are following your rules, a lot of the other students will fall in line and will follow that social leader as well. You want to make sure that you understand that there are going to be some times where students need to know that there is someone who is confident and in charge. And if that makes you uncomfortable, it's kind of something you got to put it on and fake it until you make it but you've got to be in charge. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you are coming at it as an authoritarian, like my way or the highway type of thing. In fact, often students are not gonna respond to that because you're gonna then have a power struggle between you and one of the students with social power instead of having more of a collaborative journey together. So you don't want to get into a power struggle where it's my way or the highway because there's more of them than there are of you. So understanding that and getting them on your side through a lot of different means, whether it is respect, it is getting to know students, it's getting to know what makes them tick, what they like, getting to know those students first, getting them on your side and bringing them into falling in line with what the rules and expectations are, including them in those conversations, making sure that they are participating in those activities, that's going to be key. Because again, once you have them on your side, then other students will begin to follow. You also have to disrupt where the attention lies. So if you have some students that are performing for others, you have students that are performing for perhaps other peers or they're performing because they want your attention. You have to understand where that is. Strategically place them in the classroom where they have less attention, where they have less of an ability to perform and get attention from their peers. And you also need to deal with the peers that provide that attention. So if you have what is typically thought of as the class clown in your classroom, Look at who is rewarding that behavior. Are there students around that is, are rewarding the behavior? The first thing you need to do to combat that kind of class clown mentality is you need to stop his audience or her audience. 
figure out who is giving the attention, who's rewarding that class clown behavior and deal with that by trying to stop or interrupt the attention that they're able to give. Instead of focusing always on the behavior of the person who is performing for that attention, you can redirect the students who are providing the attention and get them to follow along, praise them when they ignore it, reinforce that your expectation is that they ignore certain behaviors that are happening in the classroom because that's not part of the expectation. And that will often reduce the class clown behavior because if they don't have an audience, it just makes them look strange to be talking out or doing silly things. If no one's paying attention, if no one is giving attention to that type of behavior or they redirect from that, it becomes no longer that much fun for the class clown to perform. So that will often reduce some of the behavior. Then you can react to that behavior and say, ah, no, not expected because you are the only one that's really providing that quick redirection and attention. So understanding some of that social hierarchy is important. It's also important to recognize who does not have social power in your classroom because you don't want to focus only on the kids that have social power because they're kind of in your face. They've got a lot of attention, but you also need to focus on bringing in those students who lack social power and trying to even up the scale. So you want to try to figure out how you can provide them more attention, figure out what their strengths are, what they're really strong at, what would be admired by their peers and really highlight some of that as being an asset. Focus on their strengths and what qualities they bring to the group that allow them to be successful. Figure out what is some one of the reasons or perhaps there may be a student who is really self-conscious about their writing because they're horrible spellers. So They take some risks, they begin to write for you, and you start recognizing them of, wow, you have really amazing ideas. These are great stories. If you start talking about that, it allows that student to see that this is actually not a weakness, but it's a strength, and it provides the other students with a frame of reference or some commonalities to help that student fit in, to see, well, what are you good at? What do you really like? Sometimes you might have two students that play the same video game that love it, but they don't talk about it. They don't know that they actually have a commonality. So it's very difficult for them to make friends. So understanding some of that social power allows you to get some students on your side, redirect attention, and pull some students that are on the periphery of that social power into the fold to create a group or a cohesive unit within your classroom that often will cut off behaviors before they get so out of hand. My third rule is respect. Now, this is sometimes a difficult one because as teachers, we hold power. We hold power and authority in our classrooms, and we can choose to yield that in a variety of different ways. For me, one of my rules is I will give you respect. It is not something you need to earn. I will just give it freely because this is what I would like you to do in return. But I recognize that respect from the students to me, I have to earn that. So while I freely give my respect to them, I do acknowledge that they do need to learn to respect me and I need to earn that, especially if they've had experiences with adults in the past, which have perhaps broken trust or have not shown lots of integrity with them or say one thing and do a completely different thing. We need to get them to understand they can trust us. They can respect us. They have to respect my position. 
That's the difference. They're just required to respect the fact that I'm a teacher. Whether they do or not is a different story, but I want them more to respect my position as a teacher and I want them to respect me as a person, but that's going to have to be earned. Well, I respect them freely and give that freely and I'm going to try to show them respect at any point in time. I also understand that just because I'm a teacher does not mean they need to respect me back. They do have to, because of the rules of the school, respect the position. I can say to them, you know, walk in the hallway, don't run. And you need to sit down. Here's the work you need to do. For sure, they need to respect me in my position, but they don't have to respect me as a person. But that's what I want to be earning is I want them to respect me as a person. So I have to do what I need to do. I need to show them that I can be trusted show them that I am somebody that they can and should respect, and I have to earn that from them. And that leads me into the fourth rule that I follow when designing a classroom environment that is ready to be properly managed, even for the most difficult classrooms, and that's about relationship building. I've recently heard a quote where you're not ready to teach somebody. I think it was in Curious Classrooms by Smokey Daniels, Harvey Daniels. But in that book, he mentioned that there is a quote from someone else. And he mentioned, before a student is ready to learn from you as a teacher, you need to know at least 10 things about them personally. And that takes some effort. But I want you to think about your students right now. Depending on what you have, do you know 10 distinct different things about them and about who they are as people? It's really important. And I've never put a quantifiable number on that, but it is important. It's important that they know that you know who they are, not just their name and, you know, that they're a student, but what makes them tick? What do they do in their spare time? What do they feel about their family members? What do they fight about with their sister yesterday? What sports do they like? Why do they like them? What's their best favorite food that they get in their lunch every day? What are their favorite subjects, even if it's not a subject you teach? All of these things are going to be really important because it builds relationships. We can't just start teaching. It doesn't mean we can't do curriculum because we can build relationships while covering curriculum, but we need to know that one of our first goals is to build relationships because students won't learn if they don't think we care about them. Every student in every school needs to know that you are a trusting adult, that you care about them as people, that you don't just care about the curriculum, you don't just care about them doing the work you assign, but that you actually care about them. And even if they're the most difficult people to care about, and you may not love them, they're not your own children, most of the time you're not teaching your own kids, but you do need to know about who they are. And when you know about who they are, and when you have a relationship with them, then you are ready to teach them. And more so, they need to know who you are. It's not just about you knowing about them, but they also need to know about you. You're building a relationship. It can't be a one-way street. It's got to be a two-way street. Now, obviously, as teachers, there are certain parts that we need to edit out. I'm not going to share with my students that I love going home on a Friday night and drinking a half bottle of wine. That's probably not facts I'm going to be sharing with my students. But I do want to share with them that I love coffee, that I have three kids 
that most of my Saturdays are spent being a taxi, taxing them around from activity to activity. Those are okay things to say to them. I want them to know what kind of donut I like at Tim Hortons. I want them to be able to ask me questions about who I am and answer it. I'm okay if they know what my age is. Sometimes I play a funny little game about them guessing how old I am or whether they guess my name. Sometimes they'll ask, well, what's your name? And I say, well, my name's Mrs. And eventually they figure it out and it's this big like thing, but it's fun that I can have fun with my students and that I get to know them on a personal level. Because then when we have discussions, when I ask them to do things for me, when I use my authority that has been given to me as a teacher in this position, it means it's less authoritarian and more collaboration. It's more we're doing this because we're doing this together, not because I'm forcing you and telling you to do it. Although there are some tasks where I will have to just tell you this is what you need to do. But they'll do that because of our relationship. They won't necessarily do that just because I've told them to. We want to increase that intrinsic motivation. We want them to know that the place in our classroom is safe and caring. Our teacher is kind and accepting and open we want them to be able to come up and have conversations like they're real people with our students. We want them to know that we care about them. And I think these are the things that I want to be constantly building in my classroom. Once we get there, then we can start talking. But once we have all of those four things, then we can start talking about what specific classroom management strategy you're going to use. What are your rules in your classroom? How are you going to run things? But that's not the most important. It's the underground work that you do that has, it's very hard to quantify in your classroom. It's knowing who your students are. It's making sure that we are giving attention where attention is required. It's understanding the nuanced social hierarchy that is happening in the classroom. And it is understanding that respect can be given and it can also be earned. And when all of those things are said and done, then you're ready to figure out what you're going to put on the board to help motivate students to work towards common goals. That's when after you can start figuring out what your exact classroom management rules are going to look like. But you've got to have the foundation of a classroom culture and a classroom community in your room before any classroom management strategy is going to work because they won't work. If you don't have those other things, if you don't have the foundation, then you're building a classroom management strategy on a house of cards and it will crumble. So regardless of how difficult your class may be, there are some foundational things that you can do to help set yourself up for success when it comes to classroom management. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of Teaching with Madly Learning. We will be back next week with another episode. See you then. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Teaching with Madly Learning podcast replay. Join me on www.madlylearning.com for more information on all things teaching in the junior grades. Don't forget, you can always catch this show on the Madly Learning YouTube channel. See you next week for another replay episode of Teaching with Madly Learning. <laughs>